This episode is brought to you by The One Summit, two days that would change your life forever. For tickets, go to theonesummit.com. Welcome to Careers Unplugged, the weekly show connecting you to secrets of career success. Careers Unplugged is hosted by Rich Sayer and Stu Hayes and proudly sponsored by the Master of Me coaching program. If you feel being happy, committed, and passionate about your career is important, you're in the right place. My name's Rich Sayer, and I'm here with the fabulous co-founder of Careers Unplugged and the Master of Me Coaching Program, Stuart Hayes. Stewie, good morning. Good morning, Rich. How are you? I'm uh, in good spirits. It's bright and early. I have my my uh, cup of coffee, my morning juice, and I am parked here <laughs> in front of the computer and excited you, to... You've done uh, your vocal warm-ups? <laughs> me, 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 I have. And uh, I'm excited to be talking with you and a wonderful guest. Yes, indeed. Well, would you like me to introduce our guest? Go on, then. I'd like to introduce our guest. So our special guest today is someone that I've actually had the brief pleasure of talking to a few years ago and whose incredible work I've been intrigued by and I've followed for several years within my own leadership activities. She's the best-selling and award-winning author of SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence, as well as the creator of the SQ21 Spiritual Intelligence Assessment that prominent CEOs all around the world are identifying as the next frontier in leadership. And I have to say, I I completely agree with that. Now, not surprisingly, she's also a sought-after consultant, a speaker, and a media personality. She's appeared on Oprah, on PBS, on Fox, on TEDx, on bucket loads of radio programs and conferences. And now, Rich, even here with us on Careers Unplugged. Nice. That's good. All the way from Houston, Texas, it's my great pleasure to welcome to Careers Unplugged, Cindy Rigglesworth. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I have a deep affection for Australia, as I was telling you before. That's wonderful, and we appreciate that. Well, I think we, we are the uh, quintessential Australians. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cindy, Cindy, this is a really interesting area of, of, of study or, or, or of mental application. How did you end up in this space? It's an interesting thing to think about when you're old enough. I'm approaching, I'm in my late 50s, approaching 60. Looking back over your life, you can see patterns that you couldn't see before. And what I noticed was the seed of this was actually probably planted when I was six years old living in India We moved there from a very nice little suburban house in the United States to this sudden shift in culture in Bombay, India, now, of course, called Mumbai, where I was confronted at six years of age with poverty and disease and suffering on a scale that my little six-year-old brain could not comprehend. And I think that set me off on a calling and a feeling of vocation around trying to understand Why is life not fair, and how do I make some purpose out of my life? So in a way, that's where it started. And in another way, it started during my career in the oil industry when I was being promoted through the ranks, initially because of my IQ, but then quickly finding out that intelligence of the traditional sort was not enough, and I had to develop good interpersonal skills. And as I laughingly say, when engineers tell you, you need to work on your interpersonal skills, (laughs) you've probably got a problem. (laughs) Say no more. (laughs) Right. So, you know, now we would call that emotional intelligence. We didn't have Daniel Goleman or Richard Boyatzis' work yet, but I worked on that. And then that helped. It helped a lot. 
And then outside of my work in the oil industry and my personal life, I was doing my own spiritual work related back to this calling of my heart. And as I was doing that, it changed how I was as a human. And in a moment of life crisis and leadership crisis, when those two came together, I reacted differently and better than I had ever reacted before at the very most weak moment when you would expect yourself to in fact be a weaker leader was like my ego got out of the way and a higher part of me stepped forward. And at the end of that, I thought, I want to replicate this. This is awesome. Like who's writing about this in the leadership literature? Mm. Long story short, I couldn't find it. And uh, the idea, once it got a hold of me, would not let go. Took me five years to finally leave that career and start doing the research I'm doing. I kept looking for the person who was doing it for me so I could just read their book. <laughs> that person wasn't out there. <laughs> so you say you say there was a sort of transformation within yourself mm-hmm. um, that got to a tipping point, which you know you said there was a moment where you were put under, let's call it stress. So to some degree, I guess we've heard the term perturbation. You know where you've been put under acute stress and you found yourself reacting in a, in a better way than you had previously. Was there incremental steps or was it a sudden, you know, bang, you're in a different space? I would say for me, it was an incremental process. I kind of think of the turtle and the, the tortoise and the hare story. You know, I'm definitely the tortoise. I'm the one that plods along where spiritual stuff is concerned. You know, I learn a little bit, I practice a little bit, I learn a little bit, I practice a little bit. Mm. But over time, not even realizing it, I had built a muscle that allowed me to do a shift out of my egoic self, my ego reactions, and respond from a more humble, wise, compassionate place that I would now call my higher self, that higher self was authentic and raw and genuine and present in a way that my expert leader self, the usual self that showed up for work, could not be. Mm. And it was that authentic rawness that was exactly what was called for in the middle of that leadership crisis it was also that authentic rawness that helped get me through my life crisis that was occurring at the same time. Fantastic. It's an extraordinary uh, gift. Uh, it's a beautiful gift. Um, and I'm really grateful that, uh, that you're talking about this with us, Cindy, and I'm sure many of the audience will be as well. When, when, you, when you go back before then, so what, what, what age are you roughly at this point? Sorry, I just did a... Going to be 58 this year. Oh, when, when this happened, when you sort of... Oh, when uh, this happened? Um, I would say late 30s or, or right around... Four, late 30s, probably. Late 30s. And when you, look yeah. at, when you look back now at life before you sort of had that shift for the first time compared to how life is for you now, how comparable are they? It's almost like... I know that was me, but it's hard to believe that was me. You know, the expert, smart aleck, (laughs) know-it-all, highly competitive, feminist, put my fists up, I'll show you who's the boss, energy. 
it's hard to, I mean, I know that was me and sometimes I'm really embarrassed to remember that was me, (laughs) but it's definitely a different era. It's like a self, it's like you look back at your teenage years and you go, oh my God, what was I thinking? Yeah. (laughs) I've only got to look at my haircuts back then, let alone anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Cindy, I had the question I was was really quite curious about is, um, you know, you were still involved in um, in the corporate world at this time. Yes. Um, for how much longer did you persist, and how did when you so you've made the you've made this this shift, um, and something like this happened to me as well, actually. Um, but I'm just curious for you after you stayed in the corporate world, how did life change? Did you sort of um, were you able to put a finger on it and sort of and allow it to happen again and again, or was it a bit of trial and error, or what happened after that? There was no going back in a way after that. The expert self would show up occasionally, but I would look at that self as, you know, it just kind of, it didn't feel like me. It didn't feel authentic anymore, and I knew it just didn't work. It's like, why would you use that tool? That tool is not the right tool for the job. So expert self, you can go back to sleep. (laughs) Well, it's an opinion. Yeah. It has a strong opinion. It has opinions which it believes are the only correct way to do things. <laughs> and, and how did it work? Um, I mean, obviously now you, you've, you've stepped away, you've done some research, and, and let's get onto that journey. Um, but I'm, I'm curious because a lot of the people that, that are listening to the show will be in careers now. Um, right. So, you know, for them, there's this, maybe this is the first time they've even heard about anything like this, that... Um, but, you know, for, I mean, my own personal story was that, um, that I had a, a situation when I needed to retrench someone and I went about it and I reacted in an entirely different way to normal and the uh, same sort of things unfolded that you talked about. It was, it was actually a beautiful experience r- rather than being a rehearsed, uh, you know, legally mindful experience. It was actually very natural and easy and wonderful and uh, that was a real turning point. But it took me some time after that while I continued being a CEO to sort of really get a handle on what was happening. Um, and I was just wondering, if, is, that, is that what happened for you as well? Or did you enthusiastically decide, this is it, I've got it, and, and, it, and allowed it to happen? I would say the new way of showing up as a human being, I was very enthusiastic about. The idea of leaving my career was a slow process. I would say the, the inklings, the first inklings that that was not where I was going to retire from, that I wasn't going to be in that same company, which initially I had planned to stay there until I retired. But I would say it was five years between the first inklings that this was not my calling, that there would be a second career. And then about a year or so after that, this crisis occurred. And then it was three to four years after that before I actually left, because at the time I was a single mom, I had to pay the bills, I had to think this through. And, you know, for people who are coming to me for advice, I say, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking care of paying the bills, especially when you're the parent to children who are dependent upon you. So I was formulating my plan and studying in every spare moment what might this new career look like? So I basically put myself through a world religions study program, trying to think about what are the aspects of leadership that I could tie into the world religions if I were, in fact, to make this my next career. So that by the time life circumstances changed and there was enough financial stability, I was remarried, I could afford to leave, I left without 
a cloud hanging over me of how I'm going to pay the bills. So I felt very blessed and very guided through that process. While it sure didn't feel like guidance at the time, it felt more like getting hit up at the side of the head with a cricket bat. Uh, <laughs> you know, like in hindsight, it feels like guidance. It was like a very loving redirection, even though it was painful at times, that eventually brought me to the place where I could leave. And I needed to have a strong financial base because when you create a brand new field like this, I had to fund this research myself. There was nobody that was going to pay me to do this research. There was no academic support structure around me. So I felt very blessed that the right circumstances came together and I could fund all of this. Cindy, how important was goal setting for you at that time, you know, to take yourself from where you were to where you wanted to go? And and how did you go about setting those goals and prioritizing them and achieving them? I am very orderly. I'm a Myers-Briggs N and a thinking style. So N means I can do long-range planning, the intuitive sort of big picture thinker. And the T is I can, you know, logically analyze it and the J style of, you know, break it into pieces and execute it. Mm-hmm. I set aside a block of money and I say, when this money is gone, if this company's not turned cash positive, I'm shutting it down. So I kind of had that boundary that I felt like that's all the risk I'm willing to take on behalf of my family. So put aside the cash. And then I decided, you know, if I was going to do this, I was going to hire PhDs. I was going to build this from the Goldman Boyatzis emotional intelligence model in the same way that they built the EQ skills. I was going to replicate as much as I could that level of rigor. So while I couldn't do the same kind of research they did, because you can't get a thousand Dalai Lamas in the room to test them, (laughs) it's like I still wanted that degree of rigor. So, you know, I hired the PhDs to help me. We set about creating the description of these skills and the survey. I knew we'd have to have a survey to validate the concept. The survey itself would be helpful, but the survey was essential to create legitimate scientific validity around this if I was ever to bring it back into a corporate setting. So we had three specific goals to accomplish for the research. We had a phase one, a phase two, and a phase three research plan. And when I got through with those and all three of them came back successful, it was like, yes, we're ready to start publishing this stuff. So that was my plan. took me about 12 years to execute all the way through the publication of the book. Well, that's quite a long journey. Was there any moments in that journey where you got down or where you thought, mm, am, I, am I doing the right thing here? Or, or you were pretty confident and buoyed the whole time? I was definitely not confident and buoyed the whole time. There were many times when I thought I was crazy and, you know, wasting the money that I should be putting aside for other uses and, you know, all those negative voices that can come up. So there was a, a part of me that, was very much, who are you to be doing this work? You don't have the PhD. Who are you to be tackling a topic as touchy as spirituality and trying to bring it into the workplace where you're going to be dealing with religious issues, spiritual but not religious people, and secular atheists? You know, who are you to do this? And I remember the morning I looked in the mirror, I was brushing my teeth, and I looked in the mirror, and that voice came up again, and I said, you know, who am I not to do this? Nobody knows who I am. I can't go down from here. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's something that I'm really um, interested in and and people's self-concept and, you know, um, little voice management as a a chap called Blair Singer that we know would put it. And so many people, uh, so many of us at at different times in our life struggle with that. And uh, 
So I'm really interested how you, you know, you just, do you have moments where you sort of get that sort of doubt, but you just sort of say, damn it, I'm going to do it anyway, and whether I believe it or not, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing? Yes. And, you know, truthfully, one of the things that I, I felt about this, my felt lived experience of this, was that the idea had me. Not that I had the idea, but the idea had me. It became nice. that thing that woke me up in the morning until I finally just knew I had to quit my job and do this or I was never going to get a good night's sleep again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in a sense, there was a compulsion about this. And I heard later, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Jeff Bezos, the guy who founded Amazon, made the comment that he decided early in his life that he was going to have a regret minimization policy, that when he reached his deathbed, he wanted to look back over his life and not regret the things he failed to do, because that's the thing we usually regret the most is the stuff we wouldn't even try. That's, we wouldn't take the risk. That's great. I really like that one. <laughs> Cindy, a minute ago you mentioned that you felt, um, you felt it. Talk yes. about that. How do you, how do you feel? something like a pathway, for example, or a choice? It would come in my sleep as this idea that wouldn't let go of me. It would, I would resonate like a tuning fork when I would read something that would be, yes, yes, this is it. And when I hit my, one of my core issues around trying to define this was after I had left my career in the oil industry and decided to do this work, I was trying to define, like, what is spiritual intelligence? And I wanted to say it was the ability to behave with love, yep. but love in the English language is a really sloppy word. You know, <laughs> we say, you know, I love my children and I love ice cream, and those are not the same thing. Mm. Um, so I, I remember a felt sense in my body the day I found the definition on the Internet that I needed that would help me. And it was an Eastern parable that says, love is a bird with two wings. One wing is wisdom. The other wing is compassion. If either wing is broken, the bird cannot fly. And I got goosebumps from my oh. scalp to my toes. I still get them. I've got them right now. The hairs are standing up on my arms right now. It's like, truth recognition, truth bumps all over my body. It's like, that's what you need. That's what you need. There's something in your physical form that I think can resonate to truth. And that's an important meter for me to pay attention to. Absolutely. Uh, and so this is a, a something that you've, the way you live now, I guess, you know, I, I do my best to embody what I teach, but I often joke, you know, like I only have so many spiritually intelligent minutes in a day and this might not be your minute. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so don't hold me up as a standard of perfection. It's like I have really worked to understand the theory of this in order that I could try to apply it because it is what I aspire to be. But I don't claim perfection. And I think teachers who do claim perfection are just setting themselves up and their students up for failure. So, you know, I, I think it's important to be realistic. I strive to be emotionally intelligent. I'm not always perfect. I strive to be logical. I'm not always logical. I strive to be spiritually intelligent. I'm certainly not always that. Cindy, we live in a society where people are trained or conditioned to not make mistakes. You know, children go through the education system and, you know, they're, they're punished for making a mistake and rewarded for getting the right answer. 
And, you know, there's a lot of great writers, including Buckminster Fuller, that talks about mistake mystique and how actually we need to make mistakes because it's the best way of learning. In spiritual intelligence, where do mistakes fit in? Well, you know, the word itself even is um, one I've lost the ability to identify with unless you're talking about a math problem. Mm. If you're talking about mathematics and you're saying, you know, what's the solution to this algebraic equation? Okay, then you either have the right answer or you have the wrong answer. But in almost all other domains, I'm not sure that the word mistake is very juicy for me anymore. It's like I made a choice, and the Mm. choice had consequences, and the consequences carried information. Mm -hmm. Am I awake and attuned to that whole sequence? Have I been paying attention Mm. to that? It's more about tuition. Yeah, yeah, well, it's about your choices, your consequences, and are you learning and growing from all of that? Is it a mistake I don't think so. So I just think it's a different frame to hold it in. Mm. Everything is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> everything is perfect and everything can get better is the way I like to hold them both at the same time. And spiritual intelligence fits in in part of your uh, understanding of it with the five key intelligences. Just for our listeners, do you want, if you could just describe that and how they sort of work together. Sure. So physical intelligence is the most basic, like we start as babies learning that, which is the ability to master our bodies. And truthfully, it stays with us throughout our lives as something we need to pay attention to because we often forget we have bodies as we enter our careers. We act like our body exists to carry the head around. But care for the body is really important if we're going to be successful in our lives as parents, as spouses, as career people. So taking care of your body, IQ, which is what we usually think of as sort of your mental stuff, logic, analytic skills, language, kind of things. Emotional intelligence, which is our interpersonal skills. Spiritual intelligence, which I define as the ability to be, the ability to behave with wisdom and compassion, which is love, the ability to behave with love, the ability to behave with wisdom and compassion while maintaining inner and outer peace regardless of the situation. Mm. So those are the four that I always teach. And then there is a fifth that the conscious capitalism people add to that, which is systems intelligence, Mm -hmm. which I would say kind of overlaps with IQ and SQ. So these intelligences, while they can be measured somewhat separately, also have interconnectivity. So the body can act as a tuning fork to help you tune in to the ebb and flow of life. Well, being aligned with the ebb and flow of life and tuning into your inner wisdom is part of spiritual intelligence. Emotional intelligence includes empathy. Spiritual intelligence takes it up one step from empathy to compassion. So you need to have some foundational skills in EQ to develop your SQ. Spiritual intelligence enables perspective shifting so that you can hold multiple perspectives simultaneously. Well, that's absolutely essential if you're going to have high IQ solutions to problems. So it actually amplifies your traditional IQ skills and sets a great stage for systems intelligence. So these things have relationships to each other. One way that people sometimes think about SQ that I also like is that it can act as the guide and as an amplifier to all the other intelligences. Mm. But they're not necessarily uh, 
derivative of one another, are they? So someone could have a very high IQ and have quite a low spiritual intelligence and vice, oh, yeah. and vice versa could also apply? You know, you're more likely in our westernized societies to see the high IQ without emotional intelligence, without spiritual intelligence, mm. sometimes without physical intelligence, because we have elevated IQ in our culture. But yes, in theory, you could develop EQ, interpersonal skills, without developing your IQ, and you could develop some of the SQ skills without developing IQ, although there's one in particular complexity of inner thought that is very dependent, interrelated with IQ. Those two amplify each other. Mm, yeah. So, Cindy, um, just to change your direction, just uh, um, on the, back on the topic of the career journey mm-hmm. for the listeners, you've, you've had this beautiful um, experience or opportunity to reinvent yourself um, in the middle of your life. You've, you've embraced it. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days, you're you're in the media. You've written a book. You've um, you're on the conference circuit. What's it like? And you know how how did you take or how did it flow into that sort of the success of what you're now doing and and, and publishing on the global stage? It's an interesting process to write a book. There's few things in the world quite as terrifying, and when you write a book. <laughs> When you write a book that's based on this, like, this is the most important thing other than my children that I'm doing in my life, you know, I have my family, my children, my husband, they're obviously number one, but like, right behind that is calling is this book and this work of the body of research to have it bomb would just be terrible. So I actually had to hire a writing assistant to get through the writing of the book. I'm a good writer. I had published before. I can write a book, but I found myself in paralysis over writing this one. (laughs) Because this voice, you know, that says, what if it's all for nothing? What if everybody (laughs) garbage, you know? (laughs) Uh, I don't know anything about that voice. Yeah. (laughs) But I found this wonderful woman to help me, and I just said, look, this is really important. Here's a check. Force me through this. And she did. It was great. She transcribed my talks and um, had them reformatted into chapters. We met to have outline conversations. And she would give me first drafts based on previous talks and presentations I had given and articles I'd written. And then I could edit it. I found once she Mm. got the first draft done, I could go on. But it was really amazing to me, the amount of resistance that came up around this this (laughs) year. (laughs) What if it's for nothing? (laughs) Well, that's the funny thing with resistance, isn't it? Sometimes you, you know, as you said earlier, when you're when you feel like you're on the right path, everything's resonating like a tuning fork. Um, but sometimes you are on the right path and you get resistance as well. And, and yes. how do you find it? How do you how do you personally work out, Cindy, whether that resistance is resistance because you be, should be turning your path or that you should be going through? Or is it physical intelligence? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I think it's actually wonderful practice to have to discern that. And I actually, in, in my classes, I talk about the importance of not getting locked into a single interpretation of what does an obstacle mean. So does an obstacle or does a resistance mean, oh, wrong path, time to change, or does an optical or resistance, is it just like a weight resistance, like on a machine? It's there to help you build your muscle. It's saying mm-hmm. if you're really serious, you're going to keep this up, you know, and this is here to serve you, not to thwart you or redirect you. And I think ultimately only in a sort of prayerful, meditative, intuitive space 
of inquiring. I use my logic. I'm a big believer in not disregarding your logic, but I also use my intuitive senses. I watch for what messages come to me in my dreams. I watch for how I feel in my body with like choice A, choice B. Sometimes I'll play it out. Like today I'm going to pretend I've made choice A. All day I'm going to believe I've made choice A. How do I feel? And then tomorrow I'll say, okay, all day I'm believing I made choice B. How do I feel? And just discern. And sometimes you'll discern and you'll say, boy, that was the wrong thing. I clearly didn't hear that message properly. But it's a consequence. It's a learning opportunity. None of it's a mistake. Is that the – Cindy, is that the gold nugget? Yes. For, for, for listeners is to, to tune in like that? Is that – I would – Yes, I would say the biggest teacher to pay attention to is inside of you. It's great to pay attention outside, but I don't believe in turning over the responsibility for your choices to exterior teachers. I think Mm. you can learn a lot from exterior teachers, but you need to own the choice and you need to own the consequence of the choice. And it's not right or wrong. It's just a step on the path. Is that a trust issue for a lot of people, do you think? Just to to back themselves and their their choices, you know, because they are looking for validation or guidance externally? I think it's that. I think it's also fear. You know, we want certainty. It's a very natural human thing to want certainty. Well, I'm not going to change careers until I'm absolutely certain it's the right thing to do. Mm. That certainty really, I don't think it's there. We can't predict all the potential consequences of a single choice. It may look really obvious what you should do, and then something unexpected happens. But you know, part of our muscle, I think, is learning to discern, to try, to go with the flow, to try again. Yeah. Cindy, well. before we run out of time, uh, this, this conversation is quite fascinating, but mm. uh, there's a couple of things that would be great to talk about. So you've got, um, you've got your book. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to talk about where people can grab that? Yes. The book is called SQ21, The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. It's available on Amazon. It's available through Fishpond. Um, and it's available through various booksellers, bookstores, physical stores. There are actually still physical stores. <laughs> and I know it's available in Sydney. <laughs> I'm not sure about which stores in Melbourne carry it. But, you know, ask your local store because I know that it's, it can be ordered from wholesalers in Australia. So Fishpond, Amazon, local bookstores. Stores, um, and you can Google it if you can't find it. In those Otherwise, uh, they can have, people can, of course, go to deepchange.com, which is your website. Yes. And, of course, on careersunplugged.com, Cindy has uh, generously provided a white paper. It's a fascinating document um, that I actually read it a couple of years ago, and it's available to download from careersunplugged.com that explains spiritual intelligence um, in a way that I think is, does resonate very broadly with people. Rich, I, uh, look, oh, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's it's really fascinating topic and one that definitely resonates with uh, with Stu and I at a very personal level, and I'm sure with many of our listeners. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And my uh, pleasure. It's been great fun. I'm going to get hold of a copy of your book, and then I'm going to come back to you with some questions once I've had a good <laughs> read. Well, why, don't, why don't we just get Cindy to come back to Australia? Come on, Cindy. Yeah. <laughs> Do that great ocean road again. 
I, I think I should do that. We'll have to make a date. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get lunch in there somewhere nice. And to all of you at home, in the car, wherever you are, thanks for joining us on Careers Unplugged. We hope the insights provided by Cindy Rigglesworth will help you on your journey. Make a point of visiting careersunplugged.com and check out Cindy's white paper. Leave comments, ask questions, and, uh, and then we can solicit the answers from Cindy for you. Uh, there's also a bunch of other resources designed to specifically help you make it big in life, career and business. This has been Careers Unplugged with Rich and Stu. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. It's less than 100 days until the Wellness Summit and we are jumping out of our skins to be with you at Crown Melbourne on Saturday, August 16 and 17, 2014. If you want to take your summit experience to a whole new level, then I urge you to join us as a VIP. This year, we have two VIP levels, not just one, two. We have gold and platinum. Both include front row seats, DVD recordings of the event, goodies from our speakers, intimate VIP only time with the speakers and massive vouchers which can be used on future wellness couch events and products to take your summit experience to the next level go to www.thewellnesssummit.com but be quick vip spots are limited and they will sell out see you at the summit this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch subscribe to each show on itunes and check us out on twitter the wellness couch streaming wellness into your lives Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.